0: Well, as mentioned, we are continuing on our study of the Gospel of John. And we are in uh, chapter 10. We're finishing up chapter 10 today. Next week, we dive into chapter 11, which if you know chapter 11, it's a pretty cool chapter and it just gets better and better. I'm looking forward to it. Let me pray for us for this morning. though. Father God, I, I thank you for gathering us together this morning in this place. I thank you for the fact that we are here this morning safely in your hand. And everywhere we went this week, we were safely in your hand. In every conversation, in every challenge, in every difficulty, we have been in your hand all along. And even though we walk through a world that sometimes feels dangerous to us, a world that can stir up fear in us at times, we have been safe every moment of every day in your hand. I pray for us this morning as we look into this wonderful passage of Scripture that you might bring this idea afresh to us, that we might understand that we are, as believers, always safe, always safe in your hand. And there is so much joy and peace to be found in that. May we discover that in you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Yeah, so uh, we are covering a lot of ground this morning, theologically. Um, I know I've put a lot of stuff in your notes, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of these topics we'll come back to in the weeks and months to come, but we're kind of introducing several really big themes this morning. We're doing it all together, and we're doing it all in one passage. You could have broken it up into three or four, but I'm going to do the whole thing for a reason because sometimes when you kind of fly at 40,000 feet, so to speak in the Bible, you see things that you will not see if you're just kind of walking through the forest. And that's our goal today to kind of fly and look down on this this theme. So this month marks 30 years for me at Gateway. And it's kind of one of those things. It's like, boy, it it really flew by and it didn't fly by. And I had somebody ask me the other day, they th- a couple of other pastors, they thought it was really funny. They said, "So you've been at Gateway for 30 years?" So when?" people ask you about that do you always say like i can't believe i started when i was 12 right? I like that would be really funny if i said that and i said no i like to i like to go the other way i like to say i can't believe i started when i was 50 like that just seems to me to be a lot funnier if you will you got to think about it for a minute but i really i've i've journaled for years and years and years and i really kind of began journaling in earnest when i came to gateway because there was a lot of stuff happening at that time um, You know, changing jobs, changing ministries, moving to a new place, bought our first home, our first child was born, and uh, so there's a lot of stuff to write about. But looking back, I'm really struck at, um, I think at the way that things started here for me, and I, a lot of it's just hindsight. Like I. I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I began uh, attending a Baptist church down the street that was established, and the senior pastor had been there for many years, and then I I only attended a couple of churches, honestly, before I I came to Gateway, and so I hadn't been in a lot of churches, and I, I didn't know how it was done in a lot of churches, and the senior pastors I knew had been at their churches for years. I'd never seen a senior pastor begin a ministry so I, but in my mind i had a picture of what that would look like and i what i pictured was that when a, a guy comes to a church and he walks in as a senior pastor he walks in with a lot of confidence and maybe a certain swagger you know and just kind of walks in and here i am and here we go and that was not my experience it was very odd for me because that's not how i felt at all i would say that when i started here i put it this way i did not start uh, with a lot of confidence i started with a lot of questions and i started with a, a lot of concerns and uh, honestly a lot of fears like and i know this might sound silly but I, this is really where i was at i remember when i came here i thought i'd only preach a couple times and my concern was that after a, a month or a year, I was gonna run out of things to say. I really honestly thought, like I'm gonna, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna walk in one day, I would always have this thing on Monday morning, I would go into my office and I'd open up commentaries and my greatest fear on Monday morning was, I don't know if I'll be able to come up with, you know, 40 minutes worth of stuff to say. And I used to worry about, it, it took me years to realize that's never been a problem. I don't know why I'm worried about it, but I was. And I, I was worried that I wasn't uh, intelligent enough um jury's still out on that to be able to do this or I used to like worry about what if I say something wrong in a sermon which of course I, I have many times you know but what if I said something really wrong and, and I got in a lot of trouble or it caused a lot of you know issues in the church or I would worry about like um decisions um this job is full of decisions and there were times when I would just get stuck on a decision like what if I make the wrong choice what if we go down the wrong road? And I would, I would worry about that. Um, in the early days, I used to lead worship a lot. What if I pick the wrong song? What if they don't like verse three? What if there's, you know, oh, this song's a little faster. Oh, we're using guitar in this song. Oh, we're gonna use drums. What if they don't, what if they don't like drums? Uh, I used to worry about what I wore. Like, so when I first started here, I wore a suit and a tie when I would preach every weekend, suit and a tie, suit and a tie. I hated wearing suit and tie. I was just for church and for funerals and weddings. Like, that was it. And I remember one weekend, I just, t- I looked at him like, yeah, I'm the only person here wearing a suit and tie. And so what I did was, I was so worried about it, I actually asked permission in the middle of a sermon. It was really hot. the And I said, would it be okay if I took my jacket off? Afterwards, people were like, we don't know why you're wearing a jacket anyways. But I really worried about it for a long time. Finances, budgets, I remember when we decided to build this building has like a whole nother story but I I remember just thinking this is way too big this is too big it's gonna like the church is gonna figure out in the middle of this project we need someone else to lead this church like um, Nicaragua that was the thing I struggled with for years every year teams would go to Nicaragua and every year I wouldn't go and I would want to go but I, I didn't think I could go and I didn't have the confidence to do that um, masks came The the shutdown came but I mention all this because as I look back, I can see in hindsight that God was always there. I can see in hindsight that God was always in control, that I was always safe. It doesn't mean I, I wouldn't make a bad choice at times. It, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be problems. Jesus said in this world you'll have problems and, and tribulations, but I was safe. I was always completely safe. And I, you know, I look back and I think to myself, how would I have done things differently if I had realized how safe I was? But you know, the real question becomes, now that we know it, what will we do today? Will it change the way we live today? What if we had the kind of confidence to know that, yes, we won't get everything right, but we are safe in the hands of God? How might we live differently if we really believed that? How might we talk differently, act differently, spend differently, pray differently? How might we serve differently if we really understood the truth that we are as believers safe in the hands of God? Well, in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about the good shepherd. In the first 21 verses, and now we're going to transition into a new section. He's going to take that idea that you have a good shepherd, and he's going to push it. A little bit farther to its logical conclusion and in verse 22 it says it's now at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem and it was winter and and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of, of Solomon so John mentions now the context and it's a it's a few months after verse 21 and John mentions that it's a feast of dedication John wants us to know this there's a reason so let's think about that for a minute so the feast of dedication The Feast of Dedication that we're going to talk about is not one of the Old Testament um, authorized feasts. It was not given to Israel by God. It's what we call an intertestamental feast that comes on the scene uh, after the Old Testament is complete and and before um, the Gospels begin. And to understand it, you kind of have to go back to, mm, historians say, somewhere between 168 and 170 B.C. And uh, there was a Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, you may recognize the name, and he wanted to take Jerusalem. And so he sent an army, they besieged Jerusalem, eventually Jerusalem fell. They captured the city, they desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Right? This is a terrible thing. They set up a, a pagan altar with a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. They forced pork down the Jewish priest's throats in a very violent act. They turned the temple chambers into a brothel, and they issued a decree requiring that all Jews convert to Hellenism, which is a a kind of Greek culture, multi-God religious system. They were required to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. They were not allowed to own any copies of the Old Testament, or to read any of the Old Testament, or to speak the Old Testament out loud. If any copies of the Old Testament were found, they were to be destroyed. They were forbidden to observe practices like Sabbath and festivals and worship, and they were given two options, convert or die, convert or die. They found a third option, revolt. And so there was an elderly priest with three sons who began to put together a resistance movement, if you will. And one of those sons was named Judas, Judas Maccabeus. Uh, He had a nickname, Judas the Hammer maccabees that's a pretty cool nickname isn't it like the hammer and he began to lead this this military revolt that was um fought in guerrilla war style from neighborhood to neighborhood and and from house to house and after three years the assyrians finally left jerusalem and jerusalem was liberated on the 25th of of kislev which in 165 which corresponds roughly to um our december They liberated the temple and they rededicated it so they have this um, feast of rededication and according to the Talmud so again this is not from the Bible but according to the Talmud when Judas uh, Maccabeus uh, the hammer entered the temple to light the eternal lamp in the temple he found only a small jar of oil that had not been desecrated and so they they lit that lamp And they sent someone to go find oil to replace it. And it took that guy eight days. He didn't have uh, Amazon overnight in those days. And so it took him eight days to find it and bring it back. But miraculously, that oil lasted for eight days. It was a a miracle. And they established an annual feast of dedication. Um, Eventually, it, it became known as Hanukkah, which means dedication or the feast of lights. And so Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon during this, this festival, this, this holiday. Now, the colonnade of Solomon is this kind of, um, the, the temple is right here, the temple grounds are right here, and this is the colonnade that goes all the way around. It's, it's very tall, it's very wide. In fact, if you were here looking over here, uh, renderings would put it something like this. So you can see it's, it's pretty big, it's pretty grand, and this is a place where people would gather during festivals to fellowship. Uh, teachers would often hold classes there and have discussions there. And so Jesus is walking. John mentions that it's winter. And so part of the theory is it's to get out of the weather. Maybe it's raining. And Jesus is there on this holiday where they're celebrating um, Israel's hero and God's faithfulness to them in the past through that hero. Of course, the irony is that Israel's ultimate hero, the ultimate hero that Israel will ever have is walking among them that day, just humbly walking down this, this colonnade. But he's not merely a political or a military hero. He will bring victory over sin and victory over death and victory over separation with God. And here's the thing, they're missing it. They they don't even see what's happening right in front of them. But they do have a question. They have a question that we're going to call a hostile question. It's not an innocent question. It's a very pointed question in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And this is kind of a common translation that you'll find in, in most translations of Scripture. It says that they, they gathered around him. That word means to encircle or to surround. And it kind of implies hostility here. And it's been noted by um, translators that this, is, this question is very difficult to translate into English and really get the sense. So for instance, some, some scholars will translate it this way how long will you take away our life? They say that's kind of the, the um, rendering of the passage. How long will you take away our life? In other words, kind of how long will you vex us is a way of putting it. Another translation is um, how long will you annoy us or trouble us in this way? So for many Jews, Jesus was very troubling, uh, very unsettling, right? His miracles were very unsettling for some people. Some people would see them and think, oh, what do you, who can do a thing like that who can calm weather like that who can give sight to the blind and for some people it was just vexing they didn't know what to do with it his radical teaching was something for some people they couldn't process Um, the people he associated with didn't make sense to some people his calling out of legalism his calling out of hypocrisy the way that he was dividing Jews against each other his claims of deity were unsettling. People were around Jesus just, you know that when, when you're around people and like every time I'm around them, I just walk away. I'd, this is what's happening. He is pressing people to make a decision. Believe in him or reject him, but there is no middle ground. And they ask him, they say, if you were the Christ, that's the, the Greek word for the Jewish idea of Messiah. If you were the Christ, if you were the Messiah, just tell us. Just tell us. One theologian says the reason they're asking is because once they know who we think he is, then they'll know what to do with him. So just tell us who you are. Now, in fact, Jesus had revealed who he was privately. He had mentioned this to his disciples. He had declared this to the woman at the well. But theologians will note that at this point, he had never plainly declared himself Messiah in public. He had not done that yet. He used metaphors. He said, I am the light, I'm bread, I'm I'm the door, I'm I'm a shepherd. And the reason why he didn't just come out and say I'm the Messiah is because people didn't understand what that would mean. He would use a word, but they would think of something else. The popular view of Messiah back then was that God was gonna send an anointed one who would rise up and lead Israel back to their former glory, drive out the Romans from the territory, set up a, a new kingdom like it used to be. They had no concept of a Messiah who would, who would come and suffer and die. It just, there was no category for them in that way. Like, think about this. When Jesus plainly tells this to the disciples who have been with him for several years, do you remember what the response is? No way. There's no way we're going to allow this to happen. Right? They, they, they just can't process it at this point and they've been with them for several years in verse 25 Jesus says to them I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me so Jesus says you want to know who I am I, I told you I've been revealing myself to you, he says, for two and a half years. I've been showing you this stuff. And then he says this the works that I do will tell you who I am. Just look at what I've been doing. So, over 40 times in the Gospels, Jesus does things that um, are outside the ordinary laws of, of nature. He heals sick people instantly, He casts out demons, He, he turns mere water into wine. He feeds thousands of people with a, you know, lunchable. He walks on water. He calms storms. He heals a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years and no one could help him. He gives sight to a man who was blind from birth. And soon, next week, he will raise someone from the dead. And then there is the interactions with people who are also his, those are also his works, right? is his associating with outcasts. And uh, the sick and the irreligious and the sinners and the marginalized and the foreigners and the Samaritans. All of these are a demonstration. They are a declaration of his identity and of his intentions. He's made it clear for those who have eyes to see. And then he says, you do not believe. What he's saying is the problem isn't your ears. The problem is your heart. It's your heart. It's not merely intellectual. He's not saying if you just studied a little bit more, if you just read a couple more verses, you would figure this out. He's not saying to the Jews, well, you, here's the thing, you rightly understand God, but you just can't fit me into it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something dramatically different. What he's saying is this. The fact that they have rejected Jesus is proof that they don't believe in God himself. Because there is no belief in God apart from belief in Jesus, pure and simple. And so what he's saying is very hard for them, I'm sure, to hear. He's not just saying, well, you have God figured out, but you don't have me figured out. He's saying, you don't have any of it figured out. Now, why didn't they believe? And and, and at this point, theologians divide often into two camps. Why don't they believe? Um, In one camp, people say, well, the Jews did not believe because they chose to reject him. He says, you do not believe. You have not chosen to believe. It's your choice. This is what you decided. That's one camp. Now there's another camp of theologians who will say something really different. That the Jews do not believe because they were not called by Jesus into his flock. Right? He says you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You have not been called by the shepherd and welcomed into the flock. We often talk about this as being the doctrine of, of election. And a lot of times when people come to stuff like this, they, they, they trip and they fall. It's at this point in a lot of commentaries I read where everyone stops and they start, you know, here's what I think, here's, what, here's that guy's view, that kind of stuff. And so which is it, right? And a lot of times we just come and go, which is it? Is it because they didn't choose God or is it because God didn't choose them? And I would just say, yes, yes, that's the answer. So John MacArthur in his commentary says this, and I think he puts it well. It won't be satisfying for some people, but he says these two things, human responsibility and divine sovereignty they actually work together but they're beyond our understanding our ability to bring them together the bible does not attempt to harmonize them nor does it apologize for the logical tension that exists between them and so for us a lot of times we just want answers right just tell me what it is and i i feel like god saying no (laughs) right you have a responsibility to make wise choices and to believe in the lord But you will never do that. Just think logically, how can a dead person will itself to life? It cannot. And so there's this aspect of the sovereign work of God as well. Which is it? Yes. Which brings us to an astounding claim in verse 28. An astounding claim. In verse 28, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life. And notice what he says here, and they will never perish, and no one can take them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to take them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So this is a a favorite passage for people who would like to talk about the doctrine of eternal security. And why wouldn't we want to talk about the doctrine of eternal security? And um, they will, you know, we will always come to this passage. Now, I want you to notice the flow, though. Okay, watch the flow, because there's, People go in one or two directions when they come to this passage here. Sometimes they talk about eternal security and sometimes they talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. And really what's happening is they're working together here, but let's figure out why. So notice the flow. Jesus says that he gives eternal life to his sheep. He gives it to them, those who believe. Now by definition, eternal means eternal unending that's what eternal means if, it's, if it has an end then it's not eternal anymore right so Jesus gives a never-ending invincible kind of life to his sheep and it says that his protection of the sheep is invincible no one he says can take them out of my hand not hands but hand no one can take them out of my hand and then he says and the ones that are in my hand were given to me by the father and the father is uh, the Greek word "megos" there or all powerful, almighty is the word almighty meaning all powerful is all the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. God is all powerful and we would say theologically nothing can thwart the will of God. God accomplishes everything that he sets out because he is almighty, he is greater than all. So nothing can remove us from the hands of the Father because he's almighty. And then he says Jesus and the Father are doing the same work. This is where we really get down to it. They're doing it. Jesus has us in his hand. The Father has us in his hand. They're doing the same work. By the way, it says, so we are doubly secure in the hand, singular. Again, notice the hand, just the hand of Jesus and the Father. And no one can remove them from the hand of God. God won't change his mind about you. Have you ever thought that? Like, man, once God figures out what I'm really like, like, Game over. Your sins will not remove you. The devil cannot remove you. Other people cannot remove you from the hand of God. Circumstances can't remove you from the hand of God. Your bad decisions cannot remove you from the hand of God. Eternal life is ours in Christ. Now, you would throw that term eternal life around like we know what it means. And we don't know what it means. Because there is nothing for us to compare eternal life to. We can only think of eternal life in terms of something in the future that doesn't have what we have now, which is a clock that is ticking down. All right, so for some of us, as we get older, that clock just seems to feel louder and louder and louder every ticking of the minute that goes by. What is it like to live in a world where there's no clock ticking down, where there's no age taking place, where there's no illness Imagine a world where there's no illness or cancer, where there's no decline of quality of life. There's no decline. There are no funerals. There's no memorial services to go to. It's not, it's just not a part of your existence. It's not, you never think about it. Like I think for many of us, we don't realize how much we think about the finiteness of our lives and the world we live in, but it's there but imagine if it wasn't there. Imagine, how would you think about today when there's no end to it? I mean, we don't know. It's something to think about. It's something to kind of rejoice in. But this passage declares this great truth of eternal security. That being said, it's not primarily about us. The passage is more about the shepherd than the sheep. And it's more about the connection between Christ and the Father than Christ and the believer. Verse 30 speaks in part about the deity of Christ for sure. And, and the Trinity, it begins to kind of point us toward that. And when we start to dive into the topic of the Trinity, let me just say this, it's, it's such a technical thing. And it's such a difficult thing to comprehend. When I say difficult to comprehend, I mean you can't comprehend it, and neither can I. So it's always awkward to teach about this stuff, this stuff which we cannot really comprehend. So I've put some quotes from men who are infinitely smarter than me in your notes um, because I'll probably only confuse you but hopefully they'll help a little bit although maybe not. Here's what one writer said. The work of the Father and the Son and to me this was a great quote. Watch this in the passage. The work of the Father and the Son are so intertwined that it can only be one work. That's what he's saying. It's only one work and Jesus said this a lot. But now let's look at the logical extension of this. In the same way the identity of the Father and the identity of the Son are so intertwined that they also must be described as simply one God without denying their distinction as persons. So now here's where it gets, I know, kind of weird. There's only one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead. So uh, one writer, I th- actually I think it's D.A. Carson, gives us a, a translation of this verse that's a little bit different. Instead of I and the Father are one, he says literally in the Greek, it's I and the Father are one thing one thing and we get that clue through the fact that the word one in the Greek is neuter and not masculine so if, it, if the word one was masculine then he would be saying I and the father are one person but that's not what it says it's saying it in the neuter which means I and the father are one substance or one thing is another way of putting it not I and the father are one person because that would contradict the doctrine of the Trinity which says there are three persons In one Godhead. Not confusing at all. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He he gives an extended translation. I and the eternal father, uh, though two distinct persons, are yet one in essence, nature, power, will, and operation. He gets that from the, the context. Hence, in the matter of securing the safety of my sheep, what I do, Jesus says, my father does. I do not act independently of him. So, again, what we're seeing is this concept of the Trinity and how it plays out when it comes to the eternal security of the believer. J.C. Riley, in his summarizing um, the Athanasian Creed, which is a very technical creed about the Trinity, summarizes it this way Neither confounding the persons, that is, confusing or intermingling the persons, nor dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal the majesty co-eternal. So that just clears it all up for you, right? <laughs> Jesus is claiming this. He's claiming to be God and he's claiming that the Eternal Father is God, but there, there's only one God. And if that's kind of mind-melting and then welcome to the to the club, right? Because it is. Again, because there is nothing in this world that we can compare it to, so it makes the paradigm a little difficult. But don't miss the context. Okay, the context is this: Jesus and the Father jointly protect believers, and we are secure in the hand of God. We're secure in his hand. So imagine, if you will, a father and a three-year-old child. And they go for a walk one morning and they're walking along a road near their house and it's a busy road and as they're walking along the road the father wants to make sure that the child is protected so the father has a couple of choices right he can he can look down at his child and say i need you to reach up and take my hand and hold on to my hand and don't let go of my hand because if you let go of my hand you might stray and if you stray you might walk out on the road and it would have catastrophic results right that's one option the, uh, the other option is he can simply reach down and grab the hand of his child and hold on tightly and continue to walk now which of those methods is the surer of the method in protecting the child jesus says no one can take his sheep out of his hand we are secure not because we are holding on tightly to him but because he is holding on tightly to us and he will not let go and that is why we can be completely secure Because we are imperfect, because we make mistakes, because we sin. And if our connection with the Father was rooted in our behavior and our holding on, we would in fact be in trouble. But we are secure in the Father because He and Christ are holding on to us. Which brings us to verse 31. And I'm going to call this a type fulfilled, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Because as deep as this passage has already been... It gets just a little bit weedier for a minute, so I want to kind of walk us through this. Now, in verse 31, it says, in response to this, the Jews picked up stones again uh, to kill him because he has claimed to be God. And Jesus answered them, now I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. So his question is this, i worked a lot of miracles, so let's just be clear as you go to kill me, which one of them are you killing me for? Right, now that word good for, for good works is, um, the word means um, beautiful or resulting in health and well-being. So he's just saying, would you, are you going to kill me for the, for the time I gave sight to a blind man? Are you going to kill me for feeding 5,000? Are you going to kill me for turning water into wine? Maybe you're Baptist and against that, I don't know. Like which one, you know, let's just be clear, let's just put a name on it. But they simply ignore his works altogether. And they're accusing him of blasphemy, of being a a mere man. Don't miss this. They're accusing him of being a mere man who claims to be God. When in fact, the the exact opposite is true. He is not a mere man claiming to be God. He is God who has come as a mere man. And for this, they're going to kill him. And then Jesus says in verse 34 some words that wow have been debated and argued about for years and years and years jesus answers them is it not written in your law i said that as god said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and scripture cannot be broken do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because i said i am the son of god so let's just kind of break this down really quick jesus begins by saying is it not written in your law Now, Jesus knows that they are committed to the Old Testament, and rightfully so. It's the Word of God. They're students of it. They claim to believe it. They claim to live by it. And so Jesus says, good, good, this is perfect. It's a great place for us to launch from. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, he says, to Psalm 82. And we're going to look in particular at verse 6. He's like, let's just do a little Bible study here. Psalm 82, verse 6 says this, I said you are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. So this is God and he's speaking to someone and he's calling them a little G God. Not a capital G God, but a little G God. Now there's theories about who is God talking to in Psalm 82. And I don't have time to break down the entire passage let me just tell you where I think we're going here. Now, some people speculate that God is speaking to angels, and I think the context makes it clear it simply cannot be angels for a whole lot of reasons. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that at another time. The more popular view is that he's talking to the people of Israel at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and there's a lot of reasons to think, yeah, that really makes a lot of sense, the word of God, and the context has come to them. But there's an interesting thing in Psalm 82 uh, that happens where he says, you Now I said that you are all God, sons of the most high, but you are unjust, in your ministry, you did not judge correctly and therefore you will die like mere men. That's the third view here and that is that specifically God is talking to the judges of Israel. And if you read the passage, it suddenly becomes really clear that it looks like that's what's going on. He was talking to men and women who are judging. people. So judges of Israel, you might remember this, We covered this a few years ago. I think it was a few years ago. Went through the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges takes place as Israel's coming to the promised land and now they're taking the land. And this is after uh, Moses and, and Joshua, but before they have kings. In the middle of that, they have these Judges. Judges are men and women that ruled over Israel for a time. Before there were kings, and God called them the judges, and he would call each of them one by one to judge for a time, and he would speak to them in various ways. The word of the Lord would come to him, which or her which leads to the context here, and he would empower them to lead. And in Psalm 82, God calls these judges little G gods. Not capital G, but little G. They, they were God, capital G, big gods, representatives on earth. Uh, They were to serve the people. They were were to minister God's justice in God's name to the people. So they're not, it's not a title of deity. It's simply a a title to reflect their God-given authority. But we know in the context they misused their office. They should have judged fairly. They should have defended the oppressed and the weak and the fatherless and rescued them. But instead... We know that they did the opposite. And because of this, in Psalm 82, God is going to judge the judges of Israel, which he does. And we see that as we walk through the book of Judges. So the little G gods who should have represented the capital G God accurately did not. But Jesus is just making this argument. So let's, let's explain what is and isn't happening here. Scholars, I think, are right to point out that Jesus is not using this passage to prove his deity. He's simply doing this to defend himself in the accusation of blasphemy. And here's what we mean. Some believe that what Jesus is doing is arguing from lesser to greater. If God called Israel's judges little g gods, and that was a thing that God did, right? It's in the word of God. Then how could the Jews condemn Jesus for using the same term to describe himself when it's been used in the past? That's, That's simply his argument. You cannot... You cannot accuse me of blasphemy when I'm simply using a term that's been used in Scripture before. But we have to understand also another level of what's going on here. The Old Testament has something called types. We've talked about this before. A type is a person or thing in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus or foreshadows Jesus. It's something that helps us look forward to what Christ will be. So think of it this way some people in the old testament served as judges god would call them to to judge over israel for a time but actually they pointed to someone who'd be the ultimate judge because all of them were imperfect but god would say one day there is a judge who is coming who is the perfect judge who will do rightness righteousness so they point us to an ultimate judge they were a type of of something that was coming in the old testament you have prophets right prophets were people who would receive a message from god and bring it to the people In the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of that type because he he doesn't simply bring a word from God. He is the word of God to us. And so the Old Testament prophet points us to a perfect prophet that's coming. There were priests in the Old Testament that mediated between God and people. But someday, a, a perfect priest was going to come. That was Jesus Christ, who is our high priest and gives us direct access to God. You see what we're saying? Some people served in the Old Testament at kings, but they were like they were were lowercase k kings. But one day, they, they would point to Jesus who would come who would be the king of all kings, the perfect fulfillment of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these types. They point to him. And so what is Jesus saying here? Well, one writer puts it this way, in the heat of their opposition to what they hear Jesus to be saying, these Jews are partly right. He does make himself to be equal with God. But they're also profoundly mistaken. They have not grasped the drift of their own Bible to see how Jesus fulfills the revelation of God already provided. So Jesus is simply saying, you cannot kill me simply for claiming to be a son of God when that term, in fact, has been used in the Old Testament. Verse 37, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The religious leaders are so blind, they simply cannot see the obvious truth that's right in front of them and so verse 39 again they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands It means he simply slipped away out of the crowd and he came and many came to him and they said john did no signs but everything that john said about this man was true and many believed in him there and many believed and that's the point right that's the whole point in fact at the end of the book of john he says i wrote all these things so that you may believe now, this feast of dedication has taken place roughly over 150 times in Israel before this. But this feast of dedication is different from every other one. Because the greatest hero that Israel, in fact, the world will ever know, was walking through those corridors as they're celebrating Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. He is teaching, he is working, he's doing miracles, he is serving. And he would not merely bring political freedom and victory, but he would bring deliverance from sin and deliverance from death and deliverance from separation from God. And at the festival of the dedication, Jesus is basically asking a question. He's basically saying, oh, am I vexing you? <laughs> am I annoying you? Good, that was my goal. I meant to put you in an awkward situation because a question Jesus says I have for you is will you dedicate yourself you're dedicating the temple you're dedicating the Holy of Holies you're dedicating the, the nation once again but what about you Will you dedicate yourself to me? That's the point that Jesus is really honing in on. Will you dedicate yourself to me? Jesus isn't asking, will you give me 10% of your money? Will you give me some of your time? That's not what he's asking. He's saying, will you give yourself? Will you give your trust? Will you place it in me? He wants you to make a choice to trust him and to love him. It's the same choice he is asking of every one of us today Jesus says do I vex you do I annoy you that's the goal make a choice choose Christ he wants you to make that choice so if we have made that choice what do we do with that and I want to just close with that that we would be people who would live out the security that we have in Christ Again, verse 28, I give them eternal life. So if you've placed your faith in Christ and trusted him, you have eternal life. You're sitting here as a, as a child, as a son, as a daughter of God who has eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can take them out of my hand. Jesus says no one can take them out of my hand. Nothing can separate us from Jesus and eternal life, not our past sins, not our present sins, not our future sins, not our failures, not our weaknesses. If we fall, he will pick us back up. If we stray as sheep do, I believe that's part of the whole picture of the sheep thing going on here. He, as the good shepherd, will find us and bring us back. There's no enemy, there's no tragedy, there's no mountain, there's no valley, there's no lack of resources, there's no lack of accomplishments, there's no sickness that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, if you have placed your faith in Christ. And if you are a believer, this is your reality. I'm not talking to the person next to you or the person on the other row who's a really godly person, I'm talking to you. If you have faith in Christ, this is you. One writer put it this way, I think it was J.C. Riley said this, to be safe in Christ's hand is one thing, but to feel that we are safe in Christ's hand is another thing, right? Because I'm speaking this morning and you can be you know, thinking, well, intellectually, yes, pastor, I believe that this is true, that there's a doctrine of eternal life. But to, but to feel it is a different thing. He says many true believers are safe, but they don't realize it, they don't feel it, they don't feel safe. Jesus does not say in these verses that his his sheep will not face persecution or, or lose property or liberty or life for the sake of Christ. In fact, he says that many will be persecuted for his sake. But as Christ's sheep, we are in his hand, and we are in the hand of the Father, his hand holding us and not our hand holding him. And this is the true secret of our safety and our eternal security. He is holding on to our hand. Where do you need to walk In that security today without fear. Where do you need to hold on to that? Maybe it's a decision that you're trying to make right now. Maybe you're you're afraid. What if I don't get it right? What if I don't make the right decision and you're full of fear? Where do you need to walk in the security today that you're in Christ? And He's holding on to you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship in which in that relationship you need to start holding on to Christ more tightly. Let him hold on to you. Stop trying to control things. Maybe it's a relationship you need to get into or get out of or maybe it's at work. How would you work differently? How would you go to work differently tomorrow if you knew that you were secure in the hands of God? How would you talk and act and make decisions differently? Financially? How would you live differently if you knew that you were secure in the hands of God? Maybe it's a health situation you're dealing with right now and you're full of fear, but could you trust Christ and know that you are eternally secure in him? Maybe you need to speak up somewhere. You need the boldness to walk in and speak the truth. How might you do that if you knew that you were secure in Christ? Maybe you need to just shut up and stop talking, right? Sometimes that's true. We need to stop manipulating people and let God be God in that situation and trust him. Maybe you need to forgive someone who has hurt you. I mean, they've really hurt you, but you need to forgive them. I know I can always say that, and there's always people who are, yep, that's, but we have lots of reasons why we wouldn't. We have lots of reasons why, and yet Christ comes along and says, you need to forgive others as I have forgiven you, right? Just take some faith. It takes some security, doesn't it? Security to forgive other people and just to trust God with that. Maybe you need to start serving in some way that's just out of your comfort zone, or practicing generosity, but imagine living a life with that kind of confidence. Imagine waking up this mo- in the morning and going, "I am Christ. Today. He's holding on to me today, and the Father's holding on to me today, and nothing can come between me and the love of Christ. How would you live differently? Tomorrow morning, if you woke up with that confidence, how you how would you talk differently, and act differently, and spend differently, and pray differently, and and sacrifice differently? Well, here's the thing: regardless of your past performance, you can make the choice now to live in that confidence. You can make that choice today, and God is inviting you, encouraging you, begging you to walk in the security that is in His. I'm going to close for us by reading. I'm just going to read a couple verses that I cannot help reading and then we'll uh we'll close together with a song i want to read from romans 8 starting in verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us everything who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and now words that you're probably familiar with, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just to make sure in case we missed anything, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the assurance in your word that for those who have placed their faith in Christ, we are secure in you. But Father, I would also pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning or anyone who's watching online who has never put their faith in your son, and we are speaking a foreign language here right now, we're speaking about something that is not their reality, Father, I would pray for them right now, that they would make that, that choice this morning, that they would trust in the work of your son, and if that's If that's you, if you walked in here this morning, if you're listening online and you've thought about this, you know, Christ's words have vexed you for years, (laughs) but this is your opportunity right now to let God take hold of your hand and to trust Him. And you can do it. You don't have to walk the aisle and become a member. You can just right now in this moment confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Father God, I pray for those of us who have done that, who, who know you, that you will give us today a confidence, not that we will just know in our head with intellectual knowledge that we are absolutely safe in the hands of our Father and the Son, but that we will think like it, that we will believe it, that will move from our head to our heart, and that we will live and walk and talk and act and breathe as those who are eternally secure know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord and that we will live with that boldness and I pray that for us now in Jesus name and all God's people said